I'm reading from Colossians 2, beginning at verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May God bless this reading to us this morning. Well, it's a great uh, privilege and pleasure to be with you again after, I think, over a year. It's great to be here again. And um, thank you, David, for introducing me. Um, a little to those who don't know me. Um, you may wonder why I speak with this beautifully modulated BBC English voice. Well, in Nunthorpe Grammar School for Boys, I was gently encouraged by word and precept and several clips around the ear to abandon my rough paddy dialect 
But it was one of the great mercies of God that I didn't pick up their northern barbaric dialect, but instead learned to speak proper. But actually, um, Pache, um, what you uh, assumed um, about my religious background, in fact, my grandfather picked up a copy of Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil in a bookshop in Belfast in 1883. So far back do I go. Um, and he abandoned his Christian faith and became a zealous atheist. And it was in that tradition I was raised. Yeah. They were Protestant atheists, but they were still atheists. <laughs> A little in-joke which the Kyles appreciate tremendously. Yeah. But it was the cross of Jesus Christ that drew me to him. And it's about that cross I want to speak today. Not that I don't have wobbles. <laughs> well, we all have our wobbly moments, don't we? And the one at Colossae, which Paul was addressing in his letter, seems to have been a big one. Something happened to knock off balance this small, newly formed gathering of followers of the way of Jesus, almost all of whom had been worshippers of idols before they heard the good news of Jesus Christ. But not, not through Paul, but through his friend Epaphras. And they had come to faith in Jesus as the one who was saving them and the world. And that's a remarkable thing when you think about it. That people who'd been immersed in the lifestyle and culture of worshipping idols, which permeated every aspect of life in the ancient world should abandon that and come to a faith in the one true God. Remarkable. But they were wobbling and, and we don't know why. S some say they may have been in danger of um, falling back into their old ways blending together pagan practices with following Jesus. Or, and this is what it's worth, my best guess, someone has come among them saying, oh yes, um, faith in Jesus, that's great, but you Colossians should take on board how real believers in God worship and will live their lives. That is, someone has been saying they should obey the law revealed to Israel for the Jewish people. So they should eat only foods which are clean, no bacon sandwiches. And they should keep Saturday as the day of rest. Perhaps, actually, it wasn't either 
or these two things that have unsettled them, or both, but it could be both and, that some people have been telling them they could mix idol worship and following Jesus, and others have been telling them they should be better Jews. They're wobbling, they're unsure, maybe even divided and arguing among themselves. Those who unbalanced them seem so devout, so spiritual. They back up their teachings with stories of visions, angels, and with clever, eloquent sermons. Now, Paul is almost certainly in, in, in prison in Rome when he hears about what's happening in Colossae. And it says so much about his heart for all those who have come to trust in Jesus. Whether he had brought them to faith or not, that even though he's in such a hard place himself, he writes, or, or perhaps dictates, a strong letter pleading with them to stop wobbling, get back on track. Paul tells them, you can't mix serving the powers that claim to run the world with serving Jesus. There's a choice. You can't serve both. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, it would be dumb to try to. You've just not got the cross if you think you can do that. Now, this is really important. These powers, which Paul refers to in the passage we've, we've heard twice, are not evil in themselves. They are, in fact, the things that God has put into his good creation to make it work. We might call them the natural forces that order the world. So, for instance, if you want young animals and baby humans, you've got to have a sex drive. Again, because the world is a, a puzzling place, knowledge and wisdom are needed to steer our way through it. Again, because the world is a risky place, we need sometimes to, forgive me, Susan, man up and be brave and courageous in their proper place, in their proper place. Serving us courage, wisdom, sex, help us to order the world and make it fruitful. God put us in this world as his vice-regents and priests to order those powers to make the world flourish. That's why we were put in Eden, 
However, what happened when our first parents defied God and turned away from him is that instead of them serving us, we served them. We bowed down and worshipped idols that stood for these powerful urges, these elemental forces, gods of sex and war and wisdom and power and many other things. This is what Paul himself thought had happened to make the whole human race wobble. Read the beginning of Romans, if you doubt me. Now, funnily enough, one of those powers that can get worshipped for itself, one that is a great threat to real faith, is being what we call religious. We can, it seems, make an idol of how we try to serve God. So that we concentrate on the churchy stuff, perhaps even the feelings we get when we're caught up in worship, and make those things more important than the God to whom they point. And, and when we do that, when ritual and the religious experience crowd out the real God, all we're left with is an empty shell. When we worship idols, we allow these gods such power over us that we become their slaves. They have a hold over us, which it seems nothing and no one can break. And they are cruel. They are cruel. If we try to get away from them in our own strength, perhaps we think we must get back to God and then if we do, that will, everything will fall into place and we're right to think that, then they will turn on us. They may even use their human slaves to bring us to heel, if necessary, by force and violence. In the passage we heard this morning, Paul reminds the followers of Jesus in Colossae that there was one who had broken away from the powers and completely defeated them. Jesus defied the powers throughout his life by putting his father the one true God, always first in his life. And when they turned on him, 
with the worst sort of violence and cruelty. He did not budge an inch. He didn't try to use their own weapons of force and violence against them. He let them do their worst. For the first time since Eden, the powers met their match. Someone who would not, under any circumstances, bow down to them. And it finished them. They were broken and shamed, says Paul, led in a great procession of triumph in chains back to their proper place as servants, not masters. So when Jesus was crucified, when he was crucified, the ultimate act of obedience, the powers were defeated on the cross. The true order of the world was restored on Calvary. The Son of Man was Lord of all. His resurrection was the victory parade when what had been done on the cross was made clearly visible for all who have eyes to see. So, says Paul, it is the cross who will stop you wobbling, faithful ones in Colossae. It will root you and plant you firmly in the truth. If you understand what Jesus did on the cross, you will be able to see through the clever people who are telling you that your, your baptism, when you, you died with Christ and rose again, means nothing uh, without all these added extras, whatever they are. And what Jesus did on the cross wasn't just for the people on Colossae, wasn't just for you and me, it was for the entire world. He restored the rightful order of the world. The powers are put back in their rightful place. Our servants, not our masters. So starting with Christ and with those who trust in him, die with him and rise with him, the world is changed and transformed. The kingdom of God, where he rules as Lord, draws near. Really? Oh, yeah? 
Well, if that's so, some folk at Colossae might have said, how come? How come the emperor of Rome still on his throne, still crucifying people? How come the world seems still ruled by greed and violence and lust? How come the world remains a place where famine and illness and disaster, war, injustice, make life unbearable for so many if this great victory has happened? And would it not be forgivable if we didn't feel a bit the same? 2,000 years after the first Good Friday and Easter, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, when a billion human beings, just like us, go to bed every night hungry, when in Yemen and Syria and Xinjiang, War and cruel injustice seem to be in charge. Is not the world still full of evil and sin? Where's the victory? Well, Paul uses words drawn from human warfare when he talks about the triumph. That was the great procession that the Roman emperors had when they ended a war. So, that justifies the analogy I'm going to offer you. I know that in these islands, we think that we saw off the Nazis single-handed in the last war. Okay. With all respect to the pilots in the Battle of Britain, to the incredibly brave sailors, including relatives of mine, who fought the Battle of the Atlantic, and the courageous people who landed at D-Day, the Second World War was not decided there. It was decided much further east in a battle that many people have never heard of. The Great Battle of Kursk. If you're a Russian, you'd have heard of it, I assure you. The largest tank battle ever, exactly. When the Red Army lured the Germans into a killing ground. And there they destroyed the cream of their army. After Kursk, the Germans could never build enough tanks, could never train enough crews, to have a hope of stopping the Russians. After that battle, many German officers realized the war was lost. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Hitler and his crew didn't believe it. They fought on for two more years of astonishing cruelty and violence and suffering. 
even though in the back of their reptilian minds, they must have known. But they fought on. And so it is. So it is with the powers and <laughs> the uh, shadowy power that stands serpent-like behind them. He and they haven't got their heads round the cross of Jesus Christ. They just can't accept their beat. So they fight on. Hard as they can. It should not then surprise us when we see the world in the state it's in. The last vicious blows of a defeated foe can be truly dreadful. And indeed, we may be a long way from seeing the worst before the end comes. But come it will. The powers are doomed in their rebellion. No matter what they can still do now, their downfall is sure. One day, they and all their human servants will bow as will every knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul believed and taught, and so do I. But what would he say to us this morning? I think Paul would be shocked, though not surprised, by how much idolatry remains in our world. He would look at places like Glastonbury, where ancient superstitions, beliefs in the healing powers of spells and crystals, that lie just beneath the surface in so many lives in our culture, bubble up. That's trivial, really. He would ask us, I think, to see in so much social media, not all, but so much, the ancient cults of honor and shame, given new power and influence, the people we say are wonderful and follow, the people we unfriend when they say the wrong thing, shame and honor. He would tremble tremble at the material on the internet, readily available to children, in which women are humiliated in the service of the gods of lust and violence. He would shake his head at the images on screens and billboards urging us to bow down and serve our greed and pleasure and make them the most important things in our lives. Yes, I'm sure Paul would also warm to so many good things in this world of ours, things deeply in tune with the, with the spirit of the gospel. He preached how many try as best they can to care for the needy and the outcast and the stranger, how we try very falteringly at times to grasp the biblical truth that there is only one race, the human race, 
And we are all sisters and brothers. No, he wouldn't say everything in our world is bad. But neither would he ignore the way that the powers that put Jesus on the cross still fight on as dirtily as ever, seeking to bend us to their will. And he would be sad, again shocked, not surprised, how in many pulpits today, voices are raised telling us that we shouldn't be so up ourselves, that the Spirit is saying, we need to move with the times, accept the reality of the modern world, bend a little, blend a little. Sad, yes. But he would be angry when some of those clever, plausible voices go on to say that we should not preach the cross, for it was an act of child abuse. When God the Father stood by and let his son suffer. Paul knows the cross was nothing of the kind. Given that, as he reminds us in this passage, in Christ, the whole fullness of God dwelt bodily. And he knows that when the cross is preached, an amazing supernatural force is let loose in the world, enabling women and men to turn back to the one true God and break the power of the powers in their lives. Had he not seen this happen again and again, when he preached the word of the cross to idolaters in the ancient world. And when his friend, Epaphras, had preached the cross at Colossae, in a way neither he nor anyone could explain, but only wonder at, that word of the cross had such power to change lives and indeed the world. And it has not lost it this morning, and I preach it to you. How are we feeling this morning? A little wobbly? Is the state of the world getting us down? We lost hope that we ourselves will ever be able to get free of things in our own life that make us do and feel things we hate doing and feeling. I point you again the cross of Jesus and plead that you with me see it for what it is 
the great victory in which the powers have been defeated and all that condemns us is nailed to it. Let us receive Jesus Christ and him crucified and walk 